Well, today is going to be a little bit unique in the sense of I'm going to do something I haven't done yet. I'm pretty proud of myself. We're going to be really productive today because we are not going to get through one chapter of Esther, but we are actually going to get through two chapters of Esther. This is very, very impressive. Now, in all reality, they're not very long chapters and uh, it, a lot of it has to do, it pertains with the information that we're actually covering. So be that as it may, I'm very excited about today because we're, we're going to get pretty far. Now, I want to take you back to our last message. Um, we ended off with Haman presenting himself to King Ahasuerus, right? Ahasuerus. He basically comes to the king and he tells him, O king, we have a serious problem in the land. And the problem, he tells them, is that we have a people scattered throughout the kingdom, throughout your kingdom, O king. And he alleges, oh, they do not keep your law. King, they have a different law that they abide by. And Haman goes on, therefore, O king, something has to be done about these people. Well, isn't it interesting how nice of Haman, not only does he present the problem, but he, being productive himself, offers the solution. And the solution that he offers the king is is that the people need to be destroyed. The people need to die. There needs to be genocide against the Jewish people. And you look at how Haman, who is the typology of Hasatan, of Satan, when you look at him, how he presents himself to the king, it is so perverse. It is so twisted how he slithers to King Ahasuerus because the way he does this, the way he does it is totally manipulative. He's manipulating. He's perverting the truth for one reason, to acquire the desires of his heart. So how did King Ahasuerus respond to Haman's devious and shrewd plan? Well, let's go back to chapter 3 and verse 10. And... There we go. Verse 10, So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, or Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. So the king gives Haman the authority to literally go out and destroy the Jewish people. And this was something that I showed you, is that when you go into the book of Revelation, we see the exact same thing unfolding. Because the elect of God, the saints of God, are given into the hand of Hasatan. They're given into his hand. And where did he get the authority? Where do you think he gets the authority? He gets it from the king. So this whole event that we're looking at, it is quite prophetic. There's deep spiritual connotation to this story. Now, in light of King Ahasuerus giving Haman the go-ahead, we find that he formulates a decree. And it's a decree that is actually written, sent to every province throughout the kingdom. And we evidence this in verse 13, and this is what we read. And the letters were sent by couriers, or quite literally in the Hebrew, it's runners. They were sent by runners into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women. And one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions, moving on to verse 14. A copy of the document was to be issued as law 
in every province being published for all people that they should be ready for that day. I want you to imagine something. Imagine that you and your family, as you do today and as you've done maybe this week and the prior week before, the special time that you've had with your spouse, beautiful time, the beautiful time you've had with your children, playing with them, rearing them, praying with them, right? Reading the Word of God with them. There's all these wonderful things that you do only to wake up one day. And the next thing you find out is the government has come out and decreed that your family needs to die. Your spouse needs to be killed. Your children are not to be spared. Your children are to be killed. And you wake up to that. This is going to be a reality very, very soon, unfortunately. But you wake up to this, and you look at this decree, and there's no charges. There's no crime. You've committed no crime. The only crime you've committed is that you're part of a specific group of people, that you have a heritage. The only crime committed is that you're Jewish. That's it. This is the situation of our story. You'll notice if you read this story very carefully, there is nothing within this document specifying any crime that is committed. doesn't exist. In fact, let me take it a step further. We have proof that nothing was listed because at the end of chapter 3, the very last verse of chapter 3, it actually talks about when all the people in the province, when they received this document, this document of genocide, to go out against the Jewish people, a word is used to describe how they responded to this document. And that word was, they were perplexed. They were confused. Why would they be confused if there were crimes charged, if the crimes were listed? There'd be no confusions. Oh, they stole, they murdered, they pillaged, they killed, they did all these things. Well, it makes perfect sense. So, oh, so the government's coming out and saying they need to die. Doesn't exist. There was no crimes. The people are confused. Why is it that all the Jewish people must die? Total perplexity. I can tell you this, unfortunately, this is a reality that the Jewish people are all too well acquainted with. Throughout their history, they've suffered this type of adversity from generation to generation. Uh, Ugly history riddled with cruelty, violence, hatred, A hatred that is actually fueled by propaganda, anti-Jewish propaganda. I could give you hundreds, if not thousands, stack them high, showing you at different points in history that this is true. Let me give you an example. There was a newspaper that came out in 1934, the May edition. It's called the, The Der Stormer, a German paper. And the headline reads, how would you like to wake up one morning and all of a sudden read, Jewish murder plan against Gentile humanity revealed. But instead of it saying Jewish, it's your family. You're being charged guilty with murder against the Gentile humanity, against all humanity. You're against the human cause. Do you know what the edition actually specified in this particular edition, this paper? It was actually, this is where we get into blood libels. And they were stating that they were accusing the Jewish people for practicing ritual murder. In other words, they were saying Jewish people were going out stealing Christian, Christian children to utilize in their sacrifices. 
They wanted the blood of Christians for festivals such as Passover. You cannot make this up. This is blood libels. This is the stuff that they had to experience. This was the stuff that was alleged. Ironically, this actual, this particular issue was eventually banned by the Nazis, not because of the headline, not because of the content within, but simply because it compared the alleged Jewish ritual murder with the Christian sacrament of communion. And the Nazis couldn't have that. They weren't to be held up together. Unbelievable. And we go on. Let me show you another one. There's a title. How'd you like to wake up and to see a cartoon of your family being mocked? Don't let go. The caption actually reads, it's written in German, I put it in English here, do not grow weary, do not loosen the grip of this poisonous serpent may not slip away. Better that one strangles it to death than our misery begin anew. And I mean, look at this. This is, they depict Israel, the Jewish people, as a snake, as a serpent. And they have the stars of David lined up and down. And then the really sadistic thing is, is, and the Germans were notorious for mocking the Jewish people with the Jewish nose. And they have the Jewish nose at the head of the serpent. How would you like to wake up to this type of activity, to the media doing this in regard to your family, knowing that you're being called to a death sentence? Unfortunately, this type of propaganda, I can tell you, is making a real comeback today. The media is demonizing the Jewish people every chance it gets. And the media and the world, they love to have it so. They love to cloak their lies, their fabrications, all under the guise of, this is best for humanity. This is all best for society. This is about love. And since the Jewish people are a threat, or you can even say uh, Judeo-Christianity, Christians today... Since they're a threat to humanity, they're a threat to society, they're a threat to peace, therefore they need to be destroyed. They're an enemy of everything that is good. Well, I'm going to tell you something. The reality is the exact opposite. Because I know God has ordained the nation of Israel to bring light. He's ordained them to bring life to humanity, not death and destruction, as so oftentimes professed and Proof of this is if you just go to the best attested document that exists in the world, the Bible, the Bible proves this to be true, what I'm saying. Consider the story of Yeshua of Nazareth, a Jew whose life, death, resurrection, it has brought life to the world. It's a story that his apostles, keep in mind they were Jewish, the Jewish apostles brought this story to the nations that the nations might have hope so that they could have forgiveness of sins, so that they could be redeemed. This is reality. This is truth. This is not false uh, propaganda. This is not fabrications. This is reality. But you know, as well as I do, Satan hates reality. He hates the truth, which is exactly where Haman is coming from in our story. Haman hates reality. He hates the truth. He hates the Jews. Therefore, Haman, like Satan, he schemes, he plots, and he lies, all for the sake of killing those on earth who were meant to be there for one purpose, to bear light. So how does Mordecai react to this terrifying news? 
Well, we go and read in verse 1, chapter 4, we break into chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out in the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. I think this is an appropriate response considering what he has just learned, the information that has just come to his ears. He's weeping. He's mortified over what has happened, over what is about to befall his people. We continue on in verse 2. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was a great mourning among the Jews. Listen to what is said. With fasting, weeping, and wailing. And many lay in sackcloth and ashes. What I want to point out here is how the Jewish people respond to the news. Because their response is absolutely critical to the outcome of the story. When I see this type of activity, a fasting and weeping and sackcloth, it tells me something about where they're at. It tells me they are returning to God. It tells me they have embraced repentance. Let me give you an example of looking at these terms of fasting, weeping, and mourning. We go to Joel chapter 2, verse 12. Now therefore says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart. Well, what does it, how? With fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. The very same terms that we just read that the Jewish people had embraced upon hearing this news, we read in Joel chapter 2. This is repentance. This is returning to the God of Israel. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. What a fascinating statement. When we read in this passage how the Lord responds to fasting and weeping, turning your heart towards him, it in all reality tells you how the story of Esther is going to end. It tells you exactly because the last statement that is here in verse 12 He relents from doing harm. This certainly gives me an indication when I look in the story of Esther and they're doing these things, ah, this is good. There's going to be deliverance. There's going to be deliverance. So this action that we see them doing, very encouraging. And not just that, I'm telling you, there's a time coming in this country, you may just wake up and the trucks might be going around, rounding up all those who confess Yeshua as the Messiah that will not compromise the faith. And do you know what you need to do? You need to do what's on the screen. You need to return with weeping, with fasting, with mourning to God. He is able to deliver us. Amen? Verse 4. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai, And take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Isn't it interesting? Esther offers comfort to Mordecai, offers to clothe him in soft garments so that he can be comfortable, and he refuses. He chooses the affliction, the self-affliction, over comfort. That is an amazing thing, and it's critical Again, for the outcome of the story. He will not do it. He chooses self-affliction for salvation. He is not going to sell off for a bowl of stew like Esau. 
what an amazing thing that we see actually unfolding here. And the, you, you know, when you read in Hebrews as well, it talks about the servant Moses, the servant of God, who chose to suffer affliction with the people of God than rather enjoying the passing pleasures of sin. Very powerful imagery here. A moral, a moral story for us. Morality to cling to. Going on to verse 5. Then Esther called Hatach, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her. And she gave him a command concerning Mordechai to learn what and why this was. So Hatach went out to Mordechai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate. Verse 7. And Mordechai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. Verse 8. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. So Mordecai, through this eunuch, we find that he actually commands Esther she needs to go to the king in regard to the decree that was made to destroy the Jews. Understand something. Mordecai knows something. He knows that the king has power. He knows that the king has ability to make all of this go away. And this is why he commands Esther, go present yourself before the king, lest our people be destroyed. Move on to verse 9. So Hatach returned and told Esther the words of Mordechai. Then Esther spoke to Hatach and gave him a command for Mordecai. Now keep in mind, Esther is now going to respond to Mordecai's command. Mordecai commanded Esther, you need to go before the king. Well now Esther's going to respond. And this is what she says in verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king, who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death. This is a fascinating response. You can almost say tongue-in-cheek of Mordecai tells her, hey, you need to go into the king. And Esther's response is, uh, uh, Mordecai, maybe you haven't been around the province before, but everyone else in the entire province knows the law. You present yourself before the king, you go before the king without being called, there's one law, you die. It's like she's educating Mordecai on the reality of this situation. But then she goes on to say, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, that he may live. But then she goes on to say, yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So Esther is kind of given the indication here, hey, listen Mordecai, I haven't been called, and you can't just waltz in to the inner court whenever you feel like it. You have to be called. You have to be called to come before the throne. Now again, with each passage that we go through in this book, again, we find deep spiritual uh, connotation, a, a reality, a true spiritual reality um, of our God and his throne. And his laws. And you might say, well, what do you mean, Daniel? Well, one thing I can tell you 
You don't just get to waltz in before a God in his throne whenever the mood catches you. You have to be called. Let me give you some perspective and show you the mere image of the law that we read regarding King Ahasuerus and coming before him and the reality of our own God, the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth. I want to take you to Revelation 4. Listen to these words. After these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper in Sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Moving on to verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. And listen to this. From the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the the seven spirits of God. Verse 6. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne, and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and back. Verse 7. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. The fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now I ask you, does this sound like an environment or a situation that you can just present yourself whenever you feel like it? Absolutely not. You don't just get to come into the inner court of the king, into the inner chamber, without being called. The very law that we see in regard to coming before a Ahasuerus is the very law we see implemented in Scripture regarding our Lord. Let me give you another example of this to bring some perspective. Here's a picture of the temple. And you'll notice in the temple, this is a, a, a side shot, they've knocked out the wall so that you can see inside. But within right here, you have the holy place, right? Sanctified, holy. And beyond that, you have the Kodesh HaKodeshim, the holy of holies. Understand, you didn't just, the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, had to be called. Understand, he was called once a year. He was called on Yom Kippur. And on Yom Kippur, the Kohen Gadol, he could enter into and before the throne of God which is in the Holy Holies, it's, above the mercy, it's the mercy seat, above the mercy seat. This is the throne of God. And on Yom Kippur, he was called, and he was allowed to enter. Now understand something. He would have went in and presented himself at any other time before the throne of God. The text says he dies. Does this sound familiar? Because this is exactly what we are reading in the story of Esther. You don't just get to come unless you're called. There's but one law. You die. There was but one law. The priest enters in any time without being called. You die. It's amazing. The long and short of it is, getting back to our story, Esther communicates to Mordecai 
that people just can't come and go as they please before the king. You have to be called furthermore. She states that unfortunately, she hasn't been called. This is the problem. At which point, Mordecai responds to her, and this is what he says in verse 12. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. In other words, Mordecai tells Esther, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived and believe that by keeping silent, you're going to somehow preserve yourself despite everyone else being destroyed, despite the rest of our people being destroyed. Mordecai tells her, speak up. He commands her to speak up. We continue in verse 14. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. One of the most fascinating statements made in the entire book right here, at least in my opinion. Mordecai says something that gives us deep insight into where he's coming from, what he knows and what he believes to be true. Because notice he says, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. In other words, whether you do this or not, Esther, it doesn't matter. The Jewish people are going to be saved. They're going to be delivered. What amazing insight. And this is the insight. This is the confidence that we have to have as believers in Yeshua. No matter what, deliverance is coming. No matter what befalls us, deliverance is coming. And especially coming out of the Exodus and the uh, the, the festival of Pesach. This should be in our mind. This is our hope. I don't care what the eyes of flesh see or what your heart perceives. No one thing. Deliverance is coming. We continue on in verse 14. And so, but if you and your father's house, but, but you and your father's house will perish. In other words, if you don't do this, If you don't speak up, you're going to die. All right? Yet who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Okay, so let's get this straight. And you need to appreciate in the flesh what Esther is going through. Mordecai tells her, commands her, you need to go to the king. Oh, no, 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 no. Mordecai, you go to the king, you die. I haven't been called. And you want me to go to the king to be killed. Well, now Mordecai responds to that and says, well, Esther... You don't go to the king, you die. Well, isn't that great? I'm darned if I do, I'm darned if I don't. I die if I don't do this. I die if I do do this. Think about in the flesh, how would you respond? In the flesh and being weak in the flesh, looking at this, would you try to preserve yourself? Or would you go out on a limb to save others? What an amazing, what, 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 what an intense situation she was in. How does Esther respond to this? Does she respond in the flesh or does she respond in the spirit? Let's go on in verse 15. We read, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish... I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. Let me ask you a question. Again, what does Esther do? She did what was right. She listened. 
she adhered to the wise counsel of Mordecai. What an amazing woman, and what an example for us today, both men and women, on how we should be functioning on a daily basis, making the wise and the very hard decisions that we have to make. And every one of us, every single day, we are presented with so many options to go left or to go right. What are you doing? Habitually, what are you choosing? Life, you choosing death. Blessing, curses. So oftentimes, the curses are the much easier path to go down, the wide path. Moving on, chapter 5, verse 1. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house. Understand something. Esther walked out her faith. She walked it out. There's evidence. There wasn't just, yes, Mordecai, what you say is wise, and I should do that, and I will do that, but then she didn't do it. There's none of that. She walked out her faith. And did something that was, in her eyes, required certain death. It would have provided certain death. So now it happened the third day Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house. Listen to this. While the king sat on his royal throne, in the royal house, facing the entrance of the house. Moving on to verse 2. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. You look at this and you have to ask, why doesn't Esther die? What happened? Why was she preserved? Well, just within this passage we read, she found favor in his sight, right? She found favor in his sight in the sight of the king. But there's more. There's more than that to this story. A huge component of Esther coming to this very moment, the only reason it happened, I want to reemphasize, the only reason it happened is because she listened to the counsel of Mordecai, because she heeded his voice, and because of that, she was preserved. Now, I do want to point out here that, you know, We've been gaining some evidence over these last couple of chapters. A pattern is starting to develop regarding this man, Mordecai. In other words, there are characteristics of Mordecai that absolutely resemble our Lord Yeshua. And I'm going to tell you, the further we get into this, the more you're going to see this, this reality. Just consider the following. Mordecai was a Jew. Yeshua was a Jew. You might say, well, that's... That doesn't mean anything. It doesn't prove anything, especially on a prophetic level. There's a lot of Jews. It doesn't, well, when you start to compile evidence, it starts to mean something. I agree. You know, there's a lot of Jewish people. But Mordecai being a Jew in this story, doing the things that he did, bearing the characteristics, well, now we're presented with something else that draws our attention, that requires our attention. Consider this. Mordecai wouldn't bow to Haman. Yeshua wouldn't bow to Satan. And we know, without a question, Haman is representative of Hasatan. Mordecai refused to bow to Satan. or uh, Yeshua refused to bow to Satan. Consider this. The Jewish people are called the people of Mordecai. 
It's another one of those phenomenal statements that requires your attention. In chapter 3, almost right away in chapter 3, the Jewish people called the people of Mordecai, and yet we know the Jewish people are the people of Yeshua. We know this to be true. Think about, just coming out of the, the, the Pesach season, think about the Lamb of God hanging on the cross. What was affixed above his head? There was a sign. It was written in three languages, in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. It was uh, Yeshua Hanatzeret, Melech HaYudim, Jesus of Nazareth, King of who? The Jews. He's the King of the Jews, because the Jews are his people. And yet we find within the story, Mordecai, the Jewish people are called the people of Mordecai. Fascinating. Take it a step further, just what we just alluded to. Esther was considered wise over and over again because she kept heeding the counsel of Mordecai. This wise, invaluable counsel. She kept heeding it. Israel is considered wise because she listens to Yeshua. Consider this, what Yeshua says in John 8.31. Then Yeshua said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word. In other words, you do what I say. You adhere to my counsel. You listen to me. Exactly what we see Esther doing with Mordecai. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth. And isn't this interesting? The truth shall make you free. Exactly what we've seen with Esther. Who experienced liberty, who experienced freedom, and the face of certain death. Because... She listened to Mordecai. And we can, on the heels of this, look at John 14, 6. What does Yeshua say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, you could say the King, except through me. How does Esther present herself to the King? It was through the counsel of Mordecai. Absolutely amazing. We'll be doing more of this as we continue. This is just, it, you just, you can't make this up. It's all there. Moving on to verse 3. And the king said to her, Why do you, um, What do you wish, Queen Esther? See, she's in front of the king. The king offers, What do you wish? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. So Esther answered, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Moving on to verse 5. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, what is your petition? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. Verse 7. Then answer, uh, Esther answered and said, my petition and request is this. If I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Moving on to verse 9. So Haman went out that day joyful with a glad heart, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand or tremble before him. He was filled with indignation against Mordecai. What does Haman, again, what does Haman want? He wants to be worshipped. He wants to be adorned in the very same way that we see Satan 
wants to be worshipped. And like Haman, Satan wants us, this is what he desires, he wants us to tremble before him. You think that maybe Satan was filled with indignation when Yeshua refused to bow to him? Absolutely. You think maybe he was filled with rage, and is filled with rage, against those who bear the testimony of Yeshua, and they keep his commandments. Absolutely. Revelation 12, 17 tells us so. He's enraged. He has great indignation for us. So we find Mordecai really puts a damper on Haman's joy. I like that. I like that. You want to put a damper on Satan's joy, walk with the Lord. It makes him furious. That is empowering thought, to be able to do that. I want to make his life miserable. This is what I want to do, being under the safety of the shadow of the wing of Yeshua. Amen? Moving on to to verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. It's interesting, Satan, uh, Satan, yeah, that's fine too. But Haman, Haman calls for those who are his. He calls his friends, those who esteem him highly. They hold him up, they exalt him. He calls for his wife, who is loyal to him. Just as we find Satan surrounding himself by those who esteem him. This is what he does. Going on to verse 11. Then Haman told them of his great riches. Now look at what he does. So he calls everybody for a reason. Come hither, come thither. We're going to talk about something. My great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him. It is interesting that he wants to discuss the multitude of his children. One of the fascinating things you read about in the book of Revelation is the fact that he took a third of the angels of heaven with him. You want to talk about deception. You want to talk about an accomplishment. That is scary. That is a scary thought. That angels who have seen the glory of God, had seen him face to face, he was able to beguile them. I would say we have underestimated our opponent. Think about that. He beguiled those who saw the face of God, experienced his glory. Who is this adversary that we're up against? And he says that Haman, he wants to talk about his children. If you go to Scripture, do you know that there are two fathers mentioned in Scripture? One is called the father of lights, the father of all that's good, the father of, uh, who's created heaven and earth, and there's another father called the father of lies. And we're told in John chapter 8 that he has children. Isn't that interesting? That he has children. Yeshua rebuking a specific group around him says, you are of your father the devil and the deeds of your father you want to do. The desires, his desires you want to do. You think about this statement and what's actually going on here with Haman is mind-blowing. So he comes to discuss his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. In other words, Haman's just simply saying, look at me, look at my glory, look at my splendor, look at my riches, look at my power, look at my children, my followers, my disciples. 
You remember that passage we covered in Ezekiel regarding Satan? I want to take you back there just briefly and show you what is said and compare it to what we just read. It's really eye-opening. Ezekiel 28, verse 13. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created, promoted higher than others. This was his promotion. Going to verse 16. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence. What did Haman do? He came, everybody listen, and I'm going to declare to you the great riches I have acquired. This is exactly what Satan has done. Acquiring great wealth through his knowledge and his perverse forms of trading. 17. Your heart was filled, lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. This is exactly what is being described of Haman. He's basking in his riches. He's basking in his glory. And we all know what they say about pride, though. Pride comes before the fall. He's embracing pride at this moment. We're seeing Haman's pride. He's embracing it. He's bringing glory to himself. He's lifting himself up. I know. I don't need to read the rest of the story. I know what comes next because of what the Bible tells me. He's going to fall. Moving on to verse 12. Moreover, Haman said, Besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow I am again invited by her, along with the king. Yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Again, the very existence of Mordecai was repulsive to Haman. It was repulsive to him. He couldn't stand it. And you better believe this is the very scenario between Yeshua and Satan. He can't stand the sight of this beautiful light that brings life and hope and is more exalted than he is. Can't handle it. Moving on to verse 14. Then his wife, this is Haman's wife, then Haman's wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows be made 50 cubits high and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. So here we find that wicked Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Oh, he also had a wicked wife. Not a coincidence. This is one of the main thrusts that we see behind Haman. Having this wicked wife. And she had the spirit of Jezebel. And what did Jezebel do? The very same exact thing we see uh, Haman's wife Zeresh doing here. She's stirring her husband up to commit evil. See, remember Jezebel went out and slaughtered and killed the prophets. She stirred up Ahab to do more wickedness than any king before him. And now we see Zeresh, she's falling into the same pattern. She's doing the very same thing, having the spirit of Jezebel. And her counsel is to kill Mordecai. That's the counsel. And the fact that uh, she devises a plan uh, to kill the godly, this brings Haman joy. 
You want to talk about vileness? You want to talk about wickedness? But here's the good news. Remember, as the wicked goes about his way, and even in this age, in our very days, as the wicked goes about scheming against the righteous, and we see the scheming, we see the demonization even in this nation, especially just recently. Did anyone read that article that came out of the New York Times? This guy came out and basically said, and I'm paraphrasing, it's time to, make, to force the Christians to acknowledge homosexuality as just. These, you're going to see more of this. It's time to force us to go to their standard of living. We are in Sodom and Gomorrah, and I'm telling you, the wicked are scheming now. We're in the midst of their scheming, but know this, God is scheming. He is behind the scenes scheming on our behalf. So take joy in that. Amen?